All right, so I'm going to be continuing right in the series that Pastor Tom was in. So he went through Isaiah 1 through 5. We've been in there for the past five weeks. And so today I will be uh, picking right up in Isaiah 6. And I'll be honest with you, I got a really good opportunity. Like this is, I mean, all of it's been good, but this is like crazy interesting and crazy exciting. Like as I'm reading through this, I'm like, this is awesome. And initially I was like, oh, this seems pretty straightforward. You know, that's short, concise. I was like, this will be, you know, this will be, I don't want to say simple, but you know, in terms of what I was looking for, I'm like, this is good. And then as I dug into this and read a lot of commentaries, I realized I'm, I'm convinced that you could preach four solid sermons out of just these 13 verses alone. There is so much in here, and it's so in-depth, it, it, it blew my mind. And I'm hoping that you'll feel the same way today. So we're not gonna, I'm not going to preach four sermons today, I promise. And I'm, we're not going to be able to go in-depth on certain things as I'd like to, but I'm going to really try to touch on everything, and that'll all just hopefully make a big picture, and it'll all just really give us a good application as we finish up. So let's, let's just kind of review a little bit where Pastor Tom was at. So um, we've been looking in Isaiah here, and what we've been seeing so far is the spiritual failure of God's people. So this is all pre-Jesus coming to earth. This is Old Testament. And we're going to talk about some of that as we dig deeper. But so this is the Jewish people that Isaiah's writing about. And what's going on here is, is they're, they're failing miserably. That's what you could say. Um, in chapter 2, we saw Isaiah pleading with his people. And he says, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's saying, I want you to repent and I want you to walk in the light of the Lord. And then last week in chapter 5, we saw this analogy of a vineyard where God created this beautiful vineyard and he like made it, everything just perfect for it to bear the, the most beautiful fruit. And it was this analogy of God and his people, but he was using a vineyard. And what we saw though is after he did everything, made it everything perfect, the fruit that the vineyard bore was rancid, rotten, wild grapes. So that's what Pastor Tom talked about. So basically we have this Jewish nation who is, is failing miserably. And that's what we've been so far, but I got the opportunity now in chapter 6 to, we start to see the flip side of that. So that's just really exciting. And so I'm going to go ahead and start reading in chapter 6. But before I do that, I do want to just read the last line of chapter 5. It really helps set that context of what I was talking about. And in the end of chapter 5, it says, And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. So kind of a, a gloomy picture here, but it's going to get better. All right, let's turn to Isaiah 6. If you have a Bible in front of you, one of the Bibles in the, the seats in front of you, that's going to be on page 571. So the heading here of how I like to call this is the awakening power of God's grace. This is great news. All right, we're going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to stop there to give us some more context. So this is the word of the Lord, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that is an amazing blow-your-mind picture. But let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about this, the year that King Uzziah died. So we have to ask ourselves, who in the world is King Uzziah. How does that play into this? What's the role there? So I did some history. I looked back in, uh, I think it was First or Second Chronicles, and you learn about this King Uzziah, and he actually became king at 16 years old. That's pretty impressive to think like, we think of like a high schooler just getting their driver's license. Well, this is 
a person who just becomes king at 16 years old. And generally speaking, he was a decent king. He led his people through many uh, military battles and victories. Um, He was revered as a king. And he had the nation in the point of being very prosperous. But there's a problem with that. He had his downfall at the point where he started to get prideful. He started to look at all of his accomplishments. Look what I've done. Look at all this. Whoa, look at me. He took his eyes off of God and he started viewing himself. And it actually went to the point where he went into the temple to offer sacrifices and burnt, uh, burnt incense sacrifice, which is something that only the priest could do. And God wasn't happy with that, so God gave him leprosy. And he ended up dying of his leprosy. So that's kind of where we're picking up here, in the year that King Uzziah died. So that's what happened there. And so you've got this people who were living in this very prosperous, you know, we don't need God, we've got this taken care of on our own. Their hearts were hardened, and now King Uzziah is dead. So it's kind of this transitionary period, and this is when God gives this vision to Isaiah. So I'm going to read that over again. I'm going to go through verse 4. So once again, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah talking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Wow, that's intense. That like blew my mind when I started to read this. This is a picture of God up on the throne, high and lifted up. And it says the train of his robe just filled the whole temple. That's the God that we're talking about today. That's the God we're worshiping. And that's the God that Isaiah is getting to see. But it continues. It starts talking about these seraphim. And I think our natural instinct is to be like, whoa, this is cool. What's a seraphim? Well, the definition technically is from seraph, the Hebrew word. And what that's talking about is a burning one. So we've got these angelic beings that have six wings and they're around God up on the throne. And our temptation, I think, is to like really focus on them because that's something that we don't usually talk about. Like, whoa, what's this? But the reason I think we should not focus on them is because we got to look at what they're saying. They're not talking about themselves. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're worshiping God. So our focus isn't on them. And also another thing to notice, to see what it it talks about their six wings, which obviously sounds kind of cool, but with two covering their eyes, with two covering their feet, and then two, we're going to see them fly in a minute here. They're shielding themselves from the almighty presence and the majesty of God. So I think the picture here is clear. Who's the one to be worshipped? God sitting on the throne. And Isaiah gets this vision, this opportunity to see this. That's amazing. So we got to look at verse 5 and let's look at Isaiah's response. This is Isaiah 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's his response? He says, 
Woe is me, I'm a sinner and I'm in the presence of God. Essentially, he's saying, I'm a goner. I'm in the presence of God and I'm a sinful person and I live in a, a group of sinful people and this is a holy, perfect God. I'm done for. But I think the heart of what he's saying is really important. I think we can pull a lot out of this. He's looking at God with a heart of humility. He's not saying, you know what? I, I've done this, 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 and this. You know, I've gave money here. I've done this. And, and so, God, I'm good. You know, I'm in your presence now. No, that's not what he says. He looks at his own heart and he says, woe is me. That's the first thing out of his mouth. Woe is me. I'm a sinner. Wow, look at God. He's perfect. I'm done for. But we got to look at God's response now. That's in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. We're going to talk about atonement here because that's, that's huge. Atonement applies to us. Atonement applies to Isaiah. And atonement applies to all the people in this nation. So, but before we talk about that, we got we to gotta notice that God doesn't just overlook Isaiah's sin. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a sinner. I'm surrounded by sinful people. And, Isaiah, or, and God doesn't just say, yeah, that's okay. Well, let, let's, we're good. That's not what God does at all. God provides a way, though, to atone for his sin. For atonement of sin to occur, there has to be an action to happen. And in this case, it was the touching of his lips with the coal. So what is atonement, by the way? We got to talk about that. There's a lot of different definitions of atonement, but the idea of atonement is the idea of a relationship being reconciled. So let's say you and a friend have a falling out. Something, something happened and you're not friends anymore. You're, you're at odds with one another. But hopefully, eventually, you reconcile. That's where you set aside and you say, you know what? We're good now. That's what atonement is. So as a result of whatever it is, repentance, whatever it may be, our relationship has been restored and now we're good. So that's what atonement is. Sins have been atoned for. Because of an action, God looks at you and says, we're good. So what did that mean? I want to kind of get the big picture of atonement, though. So we know what Isaiah is, and this is like a, a one-shot here. This isn't something that we see in the Bible frequently, this idea of a seraphim flying down and touching his lips with coal. And by the way, this is one of those sermons that there could be a sermon on this totally, because there's a lot of symbolism here about Jesus' forgiveness for us. But we're not going to get into that today. So that's, this is Isaiah's atonement. At the, the tail end of this sermon, we're going to talk about our atonement. But I want to talk a little bit about atonement in the context of the Israelite people in the Bible. And if you were to look back into Leviticus 16, you're going to see the whole, essentially, the procedure for the Day of Atonement. This was part of the Jewish culture, part of their, the law. They lived on you know, the Ten Commandments, the law. And then once a year, there was the Day of Atonement. And I encourage you, if you're taking notes, write down Leviticus 16. Go read it for yourself. It's really, really interesting. But what it was is you had the high priest, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, also known as the Most Holy Place. So all these priests were allowed to go into the Holy Place, but then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies 
to atone for the sins of the people. And this was a yearly event. And this is really cool, by the way. So there would be, he would have to first have his sins atoned for, purified through a sacrifice. And then he would take in these two goats. And the one goat would be sacrificed, bloodshed. The Bible teaches that for atonement of sins to occur, there has to be bloodshed. And then on the other goat, he would then place the sins of the nation and then they'd send that goat out into the wilderness. That was called the scapegoat. So that goat would just run out in the wilderness. And the idea, the picture there is that sins have been dealt with. Now they are cast away. They're out in the wilderness. They're gone. They're done for. Our sins are wiped out. They're gone. That was a beautiful picture. The problem was that had to happen year after year after year after year. And so as we're going to look at our atonement, we're going to see the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice once for all. But we're not there yet. So Isaiah's atonement, in this case, it was the coal. It satisfied God's wrath and anger towards Isaiah's sin. And notice that Isaiah, once again, he didn't make excuses for his sin. He didn't say, yeah, but God, I did this. He doesn't go grab the tongs himself. He doesn't do anything for that matter. He acknowledges his sin. Woe is me before an almighty God. That's repentance. And God takes away his guilt and atones for his sin. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And God's response, touches with coal, you're atoned for. Can you imagine how shocked and amazed he was that God would choose to show love to him? We're going to revisit that idea of being shocked and amazed. He is saying, I'm a sinner. And God says, I'm going to atone for your sins. The story continues. That's not it. That's beautiful. He's good before God now. But God doesn't leave him there. God doesn't just say, all right, See you later. No, verse 8, the story continues. Let's look at this together. Verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, this is Isaiah. Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And God says, Go say this to the people. Upon atonement for Isaiah's sin, he is then given a call from God. God says, Who am I going to send? Who's going to do my work? Who's going to talk to my people? Who's going to talk to the Israelite people? And Isaiah is compelled by God's grace to respond in service. And I don't know. I wasn't there. Clearly, none of us were there. But I don't get the idea here that Isaiah was like, yeah, I suppose. Here I am. I'll I'll do it for you, God. Yeah, we're good. No, I got an idea that it's saying, here I am. There's an exclamation mark after here I am. I'm picturing Isaiah being like, you just forgave my sins? I want to dedicate my life to you. I want to serve you. Whatever I can do for you, here I am. I'm picturing like jumping up and down. I'm here, God. Me, send me. And God says, okay, go say this to my people. He's got a mission. Upon forgiveness of sins, now he has a call. He's got a purpose before God. God is going to send him on a mission to speak to his people. So now we're going to look at the message that he says. And this is a tough message. I'll be 100% honest with you. And this is another sermon all in of itself. If you were to look at this, this is one of those things that really can bend our brains. And sometimes it's really hard to understand. But at the end of the day, to understand this, we have to realize that God is God and we're not. He is holy and he is just. So let's look at the message that God has for Isaiah to say to his people. Verse 9, And he said, Go say this to my people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God's telling them, you need to go tell them the condition of their heart. Their hearts are hardened. They've been hardened. They have hard hearts. They're not seeking God right now. Remember, you know, we talked about the, the day of King Uzziah. They were, they were living in the prosperity. Things were good. They had what they wanted. They were not relying on God. They were saying, hey, we got this covered ourselves. We're good. Their hearts have been hardened. And what is Isaiah's message? You need to go tell them of their sin. They need to know that their hearts are hardened and they are sinful people. So Isaiah's response, we see in verse 11, Isaiah says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? So how long are their hearts going to be hardened? And this is a tough answer that God gives, but we're going to look at it. Verse um, 11 through 13. And he said, so this is God's word about how long their hearts will be hardened. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. That's, that's really hard for us to wrap our minds around. Wow, this doesn't sound right. But once again, that's a sermon all in and of itself right there. But let's focus on something. It sounds pretty, sounds pretty dark, but at the end, it says there will be a tenth that remain. And then those tenth are going to endure hardship. It says they'll be, it'll be burned again. But like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is a stump. So there will be a remnant. This is really common. We see this in the Bible. Noah's Ark, you're familiar with that story? There's, there's a remnant. There's a remnant of people. God will not destroy all of his people. Now I'm hoping this blows your mind because this blew my mind. What if I tell you that God had you in mind when he told Isaiah this? Pastor Tom and I were talking about this, and he's like, you know, you got you to gotta check this out, Ray. And so I looked at it, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So if you guys would turn to Acts 28 with me, I want to show you how God had you in mind when he said this. If you're using a, a Bible in front of you, that's page uh, 937. Acts 28. So as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context here. This is written by the Apostle Paul. Now this is post-Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So things are different. We're not talking the Old Testament context here. We're talking about post-Jesus. And so we've got the Apostle Paul, and he's an awesome, he was a, a great, great, great missionary. He was planting churches all over the place, and he's been in prison, though. And he's been on this journey, and now he finally gets to Rome. This is kind of, by the way, this is the end of the book of Acts. This is the tail end. This is really, this is the end of Paul. We don't really know a whole lot more about him after this. So, and by the way, what's really cool about Acts 28 is this story here, it, it doesn't like have a conclusion. It just kind of stops. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the, 
We're affiliated through what's called the Acts 29 network. It's a church planning network. And the reason we call it Acts 29 is because there is no Acts 29. The idea is that we are Acts 29. We're the continuation of the building of God's church. So that's where that whole thing comes from. So just to give you a little bit of uh, information here before we go too far, this Acts 28 here, um, Paul gets to Rome and he's getting ready to go on trial. And what he does is he wants to call the leaders of the church, the Jewish church together. He wants to have another talk with them. He wants to tell them about Jesus. He, that's how passionate he is. He, he knows that his days are numbered, things aren't looking good for him, but he still wants to talk about Jesus. He's like, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. So let's pick up here in verse 23, and we're going to read through 28. It says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. There's a lot of these Jewish leaders that are coming to see Paul. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. This should look familiar, the statement that Paul's going to make. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, this is Paul now saying, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That ticked off a lot of the Jewish leaders. What he's saying is back in Isaiah, when Isaiah the prophet was talking about this hundreds and hundreds of years before, he's talking about you guys, he was saying to the Jewish leaders. And then he goes on to say, let this be known, salvation that means forgiveness of your sins, it is going to be sent to the Gentiles. Because you know what? They're going to listen. Your hearts are hardened. So he's talking, he says, but the Gentiles, they're going to listen. Now, I realize that we don't go around calling ourselves Gentiles. However, most of us, I'm guessing, aren't of Jewish heritage. So we would fit into this category of Gentiles. So because of the hardening of the hearts, God says, you know what? I'm going to send my message to the Gentiles. I'm going to send my message to you. They're going to listen. That's crazy. That like blew my mind when Tom's like, you got to check this out. I was like, wow. To think that way back then, God had us in mind. That's beautiful. All right. So what does it mean that salvation then has been sent to us? We're, we're bringing us into the picture now because I'm a firm believer if, we're, if there's going to be a message that's talked about, there has to be an application. We have to walk out these doors feeling like something applied to our personal lives. So what does it mean that salvation has been sent to us? How do our sins become atoned for? That's what we got to talk about. We talked about the Jewish people with the, the ceremony, the Day of Atonement once a year. We talked about Isaiah, his sins being atoned for. But what about us? We need to have our sins atoned for. I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a very sinful person. I think we all could kind of fit into that category, looking at our hearts and realizing we're no different than Isaiah. If we were in the presence of God, I know I'd be the same as Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm a goner. 
but not because, but not so because my sins have been atoned for. So what about, so how did that work? What are our sins? How do our sins get atoned? How can a perfect God look down at us from heaven on the throne, look at you, look at me and say, we're good. How can that happen? I want us to turn to Hebrews 9, and we're going to look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We talked about the sacrifice of goats. Now we're going to talk about the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's on page 1006 in the Bible in front of you. Hebrews 9. The book of Hebrews, by the way, is a remarkable book. We don't know who wrote it. And it was, basically, it's this author taking all of the the Jewish rituals and all that, and then saying, okay, now we have Jesus and trying to tie one into another to explain how Jesus fulfills all of that. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Um, In college, I was kind of mentored by a gentleman named Aaron Morrow. By the way, he's the one that wrote that book that Tom was saying was in the back. So maybe if some of you grabbed that, that was Aaron Morrow. Yeah, he was a mentor of mine back in college. Super, super stellar guy. And he loved the book of Hebrews. And he would always tell me like, oh, it's my favorite book. I love going through it. And at that time, I was like, it's confusing. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I just wasn't getting it. But boy, the more that, you know, the Bible teaches that the word of God is alive. It is. The more you dig into this, now I see what he's talking about. This book of Hebrews is just rich, especially when it's talking about Jesus and his sacrifice and what that means for us. So let's go ahead and look. This is literally going to explain it better than I could explain it. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. The heading here is redemption through the blood of Christ. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he answered once for all, into the holy place. Does this sound familiar? This is talking a similarity to what the Jewish priests had to do, but it's different. It says Jesus now is the high priest. And it says then through the greater and more perfect tent. So symbolism here of what the Jews were doing back, way back in the day, but Jesus is doing this in the perfect tent. Not one that's been made by human hands. And it says he entered, not once per year, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. That's the gospel that we believe. That is, that is everything for the Christian person. This is our everything. The fact that Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. And by the shedding of his own blood. That was what we celebrate on Easter. Him hanging on the cross, dying in our place. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life. Perfect man. Died in our place. His blood was the sacrifice that thus secured an eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. So how much more will Jesus' sacrifice mean to us? Once for all sacrifice. All right, so I want to address two groups of people because I really want to say, okay, so what does this literally mean to us? I want to talk to potentially the non-believer and then I want to see what this means to the believer. So maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not into this thing. Or maybe I'm like, yeah, I'm checking it out, really not sure. So what does this mean to you then? I want to say atonement has not changed in terms that it's required. God still requires that our sins be atoned for, to be in his presence. For God to look at us and say, we're good, our sins still have to be atoned for. We can't lose sight of that. The difference, though, is the method. That's what we just read about. That's the difference. There's no more need for the year-after-year sacrifice. Jesus, as we just read, is the once-for-all sacrifice that covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. Did you see what it said here? I think, let's see, it was in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve God? How much more, saying how much more powerful is the blood of Jesus versus these animals? So I want you to know, no matter your current situation, through belief in what Jesus did, there is forgiveness and atonement of sins. So how does that work? First of all, we have to acknowledge God's perfection. We have to acknowledge that there's a God. He created us. He's perfect. He's without sin. He was flawless. Remember the seraphim in Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We have to acknowledge that that's who God is. Next, we have to acknowledge our condition. Remember what Isaiah said? Woe is me. I'm a sinner. I live among sinful people. We have to not acknowledge the condition of our hearts. So we acknowledge who God is. We acknowledge who we are before God. And then we acknowledge and believe that Jesus' sacrifice is the once-for-all atonement for your sins. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, through belief in that, God can look down on you and say, we're good. He doesn't look at our sins anymore. He looks at the perfection of Jesus Christ. He looks at Jesus, and he looks at Jesus' perfection and says, we're good. We call that the great exchange. We exchange our horrible sin for Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. But you might be someone sitting here who says, that's great, Ray. Great reminder. I love hearing that. That is our everything, but I've known that for years. I've been a believer for maybe 40, 50 years. Who knows? I don't know where your hearts are at. So then I have to ask you, what is the current condition of your heart? I had to ask myself this too. This isn't just me preaching to you guys. This is something I had to ask myself. What is the current condition of our hearts? Are you still shocked and amazed that Jesus would love you? Or have our hearts slowly become hard? Have days of prosperity done to us what it did to the Israelite people where, you know what? I think I can handle this on my own. Things are going pretty good. I don't, I don't need God so much. I, I'm pretty good. I got this on my own. Where is your heart at? Have days of prosperity made you forget about God? I don't know. My personal conviction was absolutely. I need to ask God to help me view him as Isaiah was viewing him. Up on the throne, train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim up there, just a beautiful picture of God, almighty God. And Isaiah says, woe is me. 
That's what I need to do. I need to look at God and say, you are perfect. I'm not. I'm a sinful person. But remember, I can also look and say, Jesus atoned for my sins. So because of that, I know that God and I can say, we're good. That's beautiful. That is absolutely amazing. All right, so one more thing to look at here. In Hebrews 9, we read through that, and then we got to verse 14. It says that um, he offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Very similar to Isaiah. His sins were atoned for, and then what's the very next thing? God says, who will go? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's the same thing here. Purification of our sins, our sins are atoned for. Why? To serve the living God. So what does that mean to us? How can we serve God? That's the next thing. Upon our sins being atoned for, we don't want to just sit here. Yes, it's good to bask in that because it's the most beautiful thing that we can. But then at the end of the day, how can we serve God now? How can God use us as instruments for him as he used Isaiah? I want us to turn now, this will be the last place we turn, to Romans 12. That's on page 948 in the Bible in front of you. Romans 12. As you're turning there, once again, a little context. This is the Apostle Paul again writing to the Romans, a letter. He wrote letters to all these churches, encouraging them, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them about Jesus, teaching them about atonement of sins, teaching them how to live and how to serve God as a result of forgiveness of sins. So he starts out in verse, or chapter 12, excuse me, saying, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Like, let God work through you. Set down all of your, whatever it might be, and just look to God. Be all sold out 100% to God. And then in verse 3, we're going to pick up here and we're going to read through 7. So Romans 12, 3 through 7. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one to another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. This isn't all the gifts that God could give, but he's giving an example here. He's saying, we are diverse. We're not all the same. There are different gifts and strengths that God has given us. That's a good thing. If we all had the same strength and gift, how would we reach out to our community and reach people and tell them about Jesus? He says that we need to be diverse. And then he says we're members one of another. In other words, we're united. We're together. We need to be together to go out and serve the Lord. So I want to encourage you, whatever your strengths are, whatever your gifts are, whatever you're passionate about, use it for Jesus. Use it for God. I like how simple Paul makes this. Like starting in verse 7, he's saying, you know, 
If your gift is service, then use it in serving. If your gift is teaching, teach. Um, if it's, you know, if it's one who contributes, be generous. If it's one who leads, do it with, be zealous about it. That means be passionate about it. He's saying, if this is your gift, use it and use it to its full potential. So I want to encourage you to, to look at yourself, look at your heart, look at what you're passionate about and how can you use that to serve God? How can you use that to serve our church? And due to the shortness of time, I'm not going to go into, but there's, a, there's another passage that I want, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's 1 Corinthians 12, and that's 14 through 27. And what Paul, again, talking to a different church, now the Corinthian church, what he talks about there is the same idea of the body of Christ. And then he says, hey, we're all acting as one body, and we all have, just like a body has different parts, members of the church, we have different parts. We have different gifts. We have different strengths that we all come together to use. And he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor the hand say to the feet, I don't need you. In other words, we can't look at each other and be like, well, you know, my gift's better than yours, or, you know, we really don't need that. And then he even goes on to say, though gifts that we think are less honorable, we need to treat them with the greater honor. When I, when I read that, I think of behind-the-scenes ministry. If you're a person who comes here to this church and cleans during the week, thank you. You're the ones who are behind-the-scenes ministry. If you're ones who's taking care, I know we've had a lot of projects around here in this church, giving your time to, to dedicate, to work on different things, whatever it might be, that's behind-the-scenes ministry. We don't see that up here on Sunday necessarily. But the Bible says those ones that we might tend to think less honorable, oh, you know, I'm not standing up in front of everybody, so not quite as good here. No, it says we need to treat them with the greater honor. So if that's you, thank you. We appreciate your service. Here in this church, we have all kinds of ministries. And I just want to give a quick little list, and I'm sure there's more. But I want you to evaluate your heart and see how you can get plugged in. We have a children's ministry. We have cleaning and maintenance ministry. We have worship team ministry. We have tech team ministry, greeting ministry. The list goes on. There's all kinds of ways that we can come together, use our gifts and strength to serve God. Remember at the end in Hebrews, it said, why do we do this? To serve the living God. What was Isaiah's response to his atonement of sin? Send me. I'm ready to serve you, God. God said, who's going to serve me? So I really want to encourage you to think about that. Evaluate your life. What is it you're passionate about? If you're really passionate about something, God gave you that for a reason. How can you use that to serve him? All right, so in closing, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Are you shocked and amazed that Jesus would love you? I want you to think about that. What is the condition of your heart? Does his grace still blow your mind? I hope it does. If so, let us respond to that with a heart of gratitude and joy. And may that inspire us to then serve God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We know that your word is true. We know it's powerful. Jesus, we thank you for your once-for-all sacrifice that atoned for our sins. We know that through you, Jesus, your finished work on the cross, God can look at us and say we're good. Thank you so much for that. 
We're so appreciative. God, I pray now that we will worship you. I pray that the songs and everything will work to all come together, God, to make you lifted up. May we have in our hearts a picture of you on the throne as we are worshiping you now. We pray this in your name. Amen.